Well, we're going to read from the Bible together now, and we're going to turn to the book of Exodus. Uh, We have two readings from Exodus this morning, two short stories that we're going to read together. Uh, The first is from Exodus chapter 15, and it's verses 22 to 27. Uh, You'll find it on pages 57 and 58 of the Pew Bibles, pages 57 and 58. Exodus 15, and then we're going to flick over to Exodus 17, which is on page 59, and we're going to read from verses 1 to 7. We're going to be thinking about these two stories together this morning, two very similar stories, and uh, we're going to combine them uh, as we think about them together later in our service. So Exodus 15, first of all, beginning in verse 22, reading down to verse 27, and this is God's word to us. It says, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah, because it was bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet." There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do, which, do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of, none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there. By the water. And then we turn over to Exodus 17, which is just on the opposite page, page 59, and we're reading verses 1 to 7. It says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidium, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do, you, why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff which you, with which you struck the Nile, and go. But behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling, quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this morning. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Exodus 15 and 17. Uh, We're going to think about the verses that we read a few moments ago. Uh, You'll find them on pages 57 through to 59 of the Pew Bibles. And as you're turning those passages up, let's pray for a moment together. Father, we thank you that we can gather together today as your people, and 
As we, your people, now open your word, we pray that you would speak to us and that you would come by your spirit, that you would settle our hearts and that you would help us to focus on what your word says. We pray that the Lord Jesus would be glorified and exalted in our time together. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Two of our favourite films as a family are Finding Nemo and Finding Dory. Uh, we've recently just rewatched both of them over a couple of Friday nights. Uh, both films feature a character called Dory, who is a regal blue tang fish who suffers from short-term memory loss. In the first film, she helps a clownfish called Marlin rescue his son Nemo. And the film hangs on the fact that she can read human writing and is able to tell Marlon the address he can find his son at P. Sherman, 42 Wallaby West, Sydney. In the first part of the first film, Dory is very forgetful, but as the film progresses, her memory becomes better as she spends more and more time with Marlon. In the second film, she remembers things about her family and is eventually able to find them. They're, they're two great films, and Dory helps us to edge our way into thinking about the next part of Exodus. In Exodus 15 and 17, God's people have a case of, of spiritual short-term memory loss. And the problem they have with this dose of spiritual short-term memory loss is that it leads to grumbling, and that can lead to catastrophe. It's worth attempting to imagine what happened in the minutes and the days after God's people crossed the Red Sea. So last week we thought about what it was like for the Israelite boys and girls to, to, to skip past the walls of water. We imagine them seeing the walls of water crashing down on the Egyptians and bodies washing up in front of them. What, what happened next? Let's try and imagine it. Well, there was singing. We know that because of what we read in Exodus 15. In verse 21 of Exodus 15, we have Miriam's song, and she sings, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. It's also not hard to imagine lots of cheering. Their enemy had been defeated. It's not hard to imagine lots of hugging. They'd arrived safely on the other side of the sea. Parents probably picked up their little children hugged them closely or, or threw them around with joy. It's not hard to imagine that they stopped to gather themselves, stopped to rest, stopped to eat, stopped to sleep, stopped to talk about what had just happened, the specific, specific things they saw and heard, the route they took over the riverbed, the angle they had on the chariots being swept into the sea, how close they were to the water's edge when the walls of water came crashing down. And after that, will the people just pick themselves up and they go on on their journey? They had a lot more traveling to do, a lot more walking, lots of walking and the realization that they had no home, not, not yet anyway. And it's as that realization comes to the Israelites that they suffer from spiritual short-term memory loss. This morning, we're looking at two parts of Exodus 15, 22 to 27, and 17, 1 to 7. Uh, and the reason we're looking at them together is because, broadly speaking, the two stories teach us the same thing. It's important to say that both stories happened. It's not that Moses repeats the same story twice. The stories are similar in that they both deal with a shortage of water, 
but they're independent of each other. What we're going to see is really quite incredible, yet not that far removed from our experience in the Christian life. It's worth thinking about the connection between the Exodus story and the gospel because that will help us understand these two stories so much better. So in the previous chapters, God brings his people through the sea, saving them from Pharaoh and his chariots. The miracle of grace brought the Israelites to saving faith. They saw, they believed, and they worshipped. What comes next? Well, to answer the question with our experience in mind, what comes after saving faith? Well, once a sinner turns to Christ for salvation, what happens next? Well, the answer is sanctification, the, the long, hard, difficult process of becoming more like Christ. The, the Israelites made a decisive break with sin when they left Egypt, but they were just starting on the road of sanctification. This began as soon as the music stopped, as soon as the chords of Miriam's song died away. Verse 22, then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Sur. The Israelites might have expected that Canaan was just around the corner and that they were going to go straight from grace to glory, but their triumph is followed by tribulation. The promised land could only be reached by going through the wilderness. And the wilderness is a hard place, as God's people are just about to find out. It's barren, it's desolate. And the thing for us to see and understand is that we are now living in the wilderness between the first and second comings of Christ. He came once to save us. He will come again to lead us home. In the meantime, though, we're on a long and difficult journey that God is using to make us holy. The journey of the Israelites isn't, isn't far removed from our journey in this life. The geography and scenery might be different, but our rebellion isn't. Which brings us to the first thing we're going to see as we look at these two stories together. Exodus 15 and 17 tells us about a group of grumbling sinners. What we're going to see is that we can identify ourselves in that way as well. A group of grumbling sinners. It's sometimes said that most Western societies are three days, from away, three days of empty shelves away from civil disorder. And that was nearly proved right during COVID. Do you remember how people went absolutely mad for toilet roll in the early days of COVID? We, we, we appear to be living peacefully, but if something went wrong with food supplies or other supplies, experts said that it would only take three days before rioting and looting would break out. That's certainly true with the Israelites. Our first story, Exodus 15, 22 to 27, tells us that God's people travel for three days from the Red Sea and they don't find water. On the third day, they find water, but it's undrinkable. They call the place Mara, which means bitter. The water isn't the only thing that's bitter, though. The people are too. And Exodus 15, 24 tells us that they grumbled against Moses. They've been rescued from Egyptian slavery in the most dramatic fashion. They have seen the hand of God parting the Red Sea and defeating the Egyptian army. They have sung, the Lord is my strength and defense. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. But all of that was three days ago. Today, they're hungry and thirsty and they're grumbling. When we think about it like this, the Israelites' grumbling is ridiculous and inexcusable. But then we think about our own lives. 
We sing of God's unfailing love on a Sunday morning and evening, but three days later, or maybe even three hours later, we're grumbling. We very quickly lose our, our, our perspective. We're, we're much better at seeing what we don't have rather than what we do. All we see is better water. All we see is our problem or lack. And we say, Mara, my life is bitter. In the chapter in between these two stories, God teaches the people who he is. We're going to come back to look at Exodus 16 in a couple of weeks. But the people don't and won't learn. In Exodus 17, they don't trust God. They grumble again against Moses. They demand water again. And they want to return to Egypt again. In 1525, we're told that, that God put the people to the test. It's not that God is trying to trip the people up. He's, he's simply trying to reveal their allegiance and is refining their trust in him. Think of an, ex, uh, an employer exposing a new recruit to a difficult situation in a, in, a, in a controlled way to strengthen their ability to perform their job. That, that, that's what God is doing. But, but in Exodus 17, we're told the Israelites test God. When they complain, Moses replies in 17:2, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Moses is despairing at the people. He, he understands what they're doing, which is why he names the two places as he does. They were testing God, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? We, we can too easily think, that our grumbling is, is harmless. But grumbling, all grumbling, yours and mine, is toxic. And it's toxic in two ways. First, grumbling grows because it spreads to others. It's infectious. Think of how those grumbling conversations unfold. We spread discontent. We reinforce each other's grumbles. That's why it's so important to cut it off at the root. We need to challenge each other when we grumble we need to say, stop, don't talk to me about it. Go and talk to the person concerned. N none of us are immune to grumbling. The, the, the other way it's toxic is that it hardens our hearts. G grumbling presumes to put God to the test. It scrutinizes God. It questions his goodness. We become the judge and God is in the dock. G grumbling puts God on trial and it finds him guilty. He, he has failed to deliver the life that I want. I deserve more than this. I need better than this. Th think about that for a moment. When you grumble, you are judging God. Is that a good thing? Is that really what you want to be doing? The, the, there are some important connections with other parts of the Bible that we need to make. The, the first is Psalm 95. Psalm 95 are God's reflections on these episodes in the wilderness. Listen to verses 8 and 9 of that psalm. It says, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. In the New Testament, in Hebrews 3, it quotes from Psalm 95 and makes the same application. This is Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. It says, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any, any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as, as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But, but both Psalm 95 and Hebrews 3 pick up the stories of Exodus 15 and 17 
and suggest that what started as grumbling at Massa led to outright rebellion on the borders of the promised land and 40 years of judgment in the wilderness. When we presume to judge God, we're in danger of being deceived by sin and in turn facing God's judgment. We, we might think that a dose of spiritual short-term memory loss isn't that serious, but it can lead to grumbling, and grumbling can lead to ruin. A, a group of grumbling sinners. But that's Israel at Massa and Meribah. That's us here in Bukna this morning. And the encouragement of the scriptures is to extort, ex, exhort, tell, speak to one another every day that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. These stories tell us about a group of grumbling sinners, but, but, but they also tell us something else. They, they tell us about someone else. They tell us about a gracious and patient God. A group of grumbling sinners and a gracious and patient God. It's worth considering things from God's perspective. What could he and what perhaps should he have done to the grumbling from the Israelites? Well, he could have just wiped the people out. Having saved them, he could have completely lost their rag and said, enough is enough, you're too fickle for me, goodbye. But he doesn't do that because it's not in his character. There, there are different aspects of God's character revealed in these stories. We see him revealed to us as the provider. He, he provides water in both cases to the Israelites. His faithfulness is in view as well. Despite the people being unfaithful, he is completely faithful. Having saved his people, he doesn't leave them to their own devices. He gives them what they need at just the right moment. And he's merciful and, and patient. He gives them water. He, he graciously responds to the grumbling of the Israelites by generously providing for their needs. The, the thing is, he's the same God today. We, we were thinking about that with the boys and girls just as we are the same as the people of Israel in that we grumble, so God is the same, that he is always gracious and patient. We see his grace, grace and patience from a different angle though, a better angle, from the angle of Jesus. Grumbling is a spiritual problem that can lead to disaster, so what's the solution? Well, it's always and only Jesus. In John 6, we're told of how Jesus feeds 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish in a wilderness. The people recognize the echoes, echoes of Moses providing manna in the wilderness. But, but Jesus is more than a new type of Moses. Moses was merely a type of Christ. Jesus is the bread of life. And he says that whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Je Jesus himself has come down from heaven like manna to satisfy God's people, he satisfies our hunger and quenches our thirst, just as God did for the Israelites in Exodus 15 and 17. Jesus satisfies in a way that, that goes far beyond the provision of bread. He gives eternal life to his people. He doesn't always give us what we want, but he meets our deepest needs. He gives us identity, fulfillment, forgiveness, and relationship. Above all, he gives us life. He gives us a future, an eternal future in God's presence. Jesus gives us himself, and that's a gift that endures beyond death. We look for satisfaction in wealth, but wealth corrodes. 
We look for satisfaction in our careers, but at best, careers end in retirement. We look for satisfaction in the admiration of others, but our powers decline or, or someone more admirable comes along. Even when these things don't endure, even when these things endure, we don't. We die and death robs us of all the things we've lived for because we can take none of it with us. There's only one true exception, and that's Jesus. Death does not rob us of Jesus. Quite the opposite. It opens the door to a greater experience of his glory. If you trust Jesus, if you look to him and know that he is enough for you, there will never ever come a day when he is not enough. In John 6, how do Jesus' hearers respond to this offer? Will they grumble? And among all the other things that he says to them, he says this in John 6, 43, do not grumble among yourselves. We grumble when we lose perspective. We take our eyes off Jesus. We look for satisfaction in other places. And in those moments, Jesus invites us to look at our lives from the perspective of the cross and from the perspective of eternity. And here's what we need to see. The cross is the measure of his generosity. Jesus has given everything for us. He left heaven for us. He knew hunger and thirst so that we could be satisfied. He sweated blood in Gethsemane for us. He was betrayed, mocked, beaten, and ultimately crucified. This is how generous he is. This is how gracious and patient God is, despite our grumbling. Jesus gave up his life for his people. Do, do, do we really think that the one who gave everything he had for us would not give everything we need to us? We, we also need to see that eternity is the measure of his gift. Well, what Jesus gives us is eternal life, the gift that keeps on giving, the gift that never runs out and never wears out, our life now may not be the life we would have chosen, but this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Jesus will give us all we need today and he will give us all he has one day. God is, is gracious and patient towards a group of grumbling sinners. That's good news for us because so often we have short-term spiritual memory loss and we forget what God has done for us. We, we've teased out New Testament connection to these stories, but, but there's something else we need to see from the second story from Exodus 17. It's a fascinating, fascinating little story and the, 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 the choreography is very, very significant because it gives us a picture of a courtroom. We, we've been watching Happy Valley over the past few weeks and there was a dramatic courtroom scene where the bad guy, Tommy Lee Royce, escaped during a sentencing hearing. If you know what I'm talking about and you've seen what happens, you might struggle to believe this. But the scene in Exodus 17 is even more dramatic. The, the, the Israelites have put God on trial through their grumbling. And the courtroom is arranged. The, the representatives, representatives of Israel are on one side, verse 5. God says, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb in verse 6. So the representatives of Israel are on one side, God is on the other side. And this is the case of Israel versus God. In the middle is Moses with his staff. 
In verse 5, we're reminded that this is the staff that brought judgment on Egypt. So Moses, as it were, is the judge. And all of this, all of this takes place in front of everyone. They're in the public gallery so that everyone can see what happens. We know that Israel are guilty and deserve to be condemned. We know that God is innocent and deserves to be vindicated. But God tells Moses, strike the rock, the rock where God is standing. It's the most dramatic and surprising moment. It's not what you expect. Moses brings down the rod of judgment on God. God takes the judgment that his people deserve. And as a result, blessing flows to the people as the water comes out of the rock to quench the people's thirst. This story comes after the Red Sea deliverance and before God appears at Sinai. We might think that it's insignificant compared to what came before and what happens afterwards, but in his final song for Israel, Moses sings of how God is the rock. And for us, there's more. The rock was Christ. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, Paul says that the Israelites all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. What happens in Exodus 17 is a picture of and a pointer to the cross. At the cross, the great court case between God and humanity came to its climax. On one side was guilty humanity deserving condemnation. On the other side was the perfect sinless son of God, Christ the rock. And God the Father said, strike the rock. The rod of his judgment fell on Jesus And Jesus satisfies our needs. But more than that, he's the rock who bears our judgment. That's good. That's good news for a grumbling sinner like me and a grumbling sinner like you. If you know him, if you've trusted in Jesus, then this morning you can know in a very real and tangible way that through him your thirst is quenched and your guilt is removed. What good news that is. How often we forget it. How often we suffer from spiritual short-term memory loss. How good it is to be reminded of all that Jesus has done for us. How good it is to start another week with the gospel ringing in our ears. Well, what if you don't know Jesus though? What if you're not trusting in him? Well, this morning Jesus calls you to come to him. And as we're going to sing in our closing hymn, He calls you to come to him because you're broken and you need to be mended. You're wounded and you need to be healed. You're desperate and you need to be rescued. You're empty and you need to be filled. You're guilty and you need to be pardoned. You can only be pardoned by the blood of Christ the Lamb. He is the rock who was struck and by being struck, he shed his blood. The images are all mixed up. But but it's through the cross and by turning to Christ in faith, you're welcomed with open arms by God, just as you are. If you've never come to Christ, will you come to him today? Will you respond to his gracious and patient offer? Jesus can satisfy your needs. But more than that, he is the rock who has taken on your judgment. So will you turn to him? Will you trust in him?
Exodus 15 and 17 contains two short stories that tell us about a group of grumbling sinners and a gracious and patient God. A gracious and patient God who will pardon you if you would only turn to him. Let's pray together. Father, as we come before you this morning, we confess that we are so prone to spiritual short-term memory loss, that we're so prone to grumbling about our life in this world, that we so often forget all that you've done for us, all that you provide for us, all the blessings that you have given to us. This morning, forgive us for our grumbling and help us to turn afresh to the rock, to the Lord Jesus, the one who has taken on the judgment that we deserve, also that we might be welcomed into your open arms, just as we are. And Father, we pray for those who haven't yet trusted in Jesus, that they might come to know him today, that they might realize that they're broken and need to be mended, that they're guilty and that their sins need to be pardoned. Help them by your spirit to look to Christ and to trust in the rock so that he might quench their spiritual thirst. Father, we thank you for your word to us. Bless it to all of our hearts, we pray. For we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.